Welcome to part two of the 2021 end of year podcast. Okay, so we'll look at the training questions, and I'm going to let you into a little inside secret here. I've just done all of these. I answered every single one of them in a single take, was really happy with all my answers to all of them, and then realized I hadn't pressed record. <laughs> so so this is the second one, uh, time going through them, and only I will know if the first one was better or not, because it's lost to history. Anywho, so the first question is from Ali Whittick. He said, uh, sports, science, or sensei says an anecdote, which is breast for growth um well if, if sensei is telling you about martial arts and obviously that's something he knows a lot about you would hope so so therefore that can be useful if we're talking about uh, physical conditioning and and uh, optimal performance then sports science is more useful because the way that science works is individual studies are done, the peer-reviewed, uh, and then you get this kind of uh, meta-analysis of a whole host of studies to come to kind of conclusions. You know, and if any new information comes in that would overturn that conclusion, then that gets factored in as well. So the sports science stuff, you're not just looking at one person's experience, you're looking at lots of people's experience in a way that's been very closely studied by people who know how to run proper scientific studies, because it'll be checked by other scientists. So sports science is really important. The one thing I would say with that is a lot of the sports science uh, is aimed at elite level athletes. You know, because you're talking, you'll know, take the Olympic hundred meters, right? You're talking about you know hundreds of a second between who wins and who comes second. So so therefore these these finite things can make all the difference for for us, the likes of us who aren't professional athletes, right? Uh, we can get sometimes get lost in the sports science. So we have to be a little bit mindful of that. Because it's not going to make a great difference to you. If you're training consistently in a way that you enjoy, you will get benefits from it. Um, everybody's different. So sometimes what will happen is you'll be training in a certain way that you like and you're getting benefits from and there'll be somebody who comes waving a research paper at you and tells you you're doing it wrong. Well, you're not. It's working for you. You're getting the benefits out of it. Um, you will get results. And, and the key thing to getting any results is that you're consistent in your training. So it has to be something that you, you enjoy. So if the sports science tells you to do something different, but you're not enjoying it, it's only going to be a minor difference in most cases. And for the non-professional athletes, it'll be a barely noticeable difference. So, you know, I, I, the way that I... And it also, it's not only that as well. You've also got to factor in things like, well, how much time have you got? What other things do you want to do with your life? A full-time athlete is a full-time athlete. That's all they do. But, you know, for the rest of... Uh, so we've got jobs and families and friends and other interests you know you can't spend all day training so but the sports science is definitely a useful guide um uh, and uh, with sensei says I, I would definitely avoid that when it comes to the physical conditioning side of things you're better looking at the sports science but the key thing is find something that you like Next one's from Tim Hyde. He says, what self-made training tools turned out brilliant for you? Uh, loads of it. Loads of little self-made things. I mean, simple things like, you know, tying a belt to the tree in my garden. 
to practice the uchikomi, uh, the foot movement and arm movements for throwing was something I did during lockdown. Loved that. It was fun. It felt like I was keeping my throwing ticking over while I didn't have anyone to throw. Uh, I also tied a bag and put a jumper on a big old punch bag I had and threw that around my garden. The neighbours have long since given up on me, right? So, uh, But that worked out great. But I think the number one self-made training tool that turned out brilliant for me was uh, a machine I made to help me stretch when I was 16 years old. And I made that as part of my technology project at school. So um, uh, one of the projects for that particular qualification was you had to identify a problem, then come up with a, a technological solution. And my teacher for that said to all of us, you know, pick a problem that's related to something you enjoy because they're always the best project. So I thought, right, let's, you know, get something that will help me stretch. So I had you know, sliding bits and bits where you could support yourself and uh, um, the runners that came off. I was really happy with it. You know, I spent a lot of time designing it and I built it and it was a labour of love. You know, during the breaks at school, I was going into the metal working shop to carry on working on the thing. It was just great fun. And I got an A. <laughs> Only A I ever got, but I got an A. Uh, wasn't that great at school, but I got, I got an A in, in that one. So that turned out brilliant. Um, so I remember it vividly. I remember doing all the drawings for it. I think I had a picture of uh, Jean Frenette doing one of those vertical straight-up sidekicks that he, he, he does uh, on the cover. And... Um, uh, yeah, I think it's still in my mum's attic as well, actually, that machine. So, yeah, that one worked out great, because I got an A. Bob's bitch. Thoughts, Bob? Have you got the voice settings sorted? I have. What have you done? This is worse than before. It's not me, Bob. It's not my fault. You're technically inept. It f well is you. This is not the voice I chose. Of all the karateka in all the world, I have to end up with you. You're doing this just because, you know, I'll make you look silly if I'm legitimately allowed to talk. Not at all true, Bob. Just say what you've got to say. Give me the control panel so I can sort this myself. Look, there you go. You work it out and I'll get back to the questions. No, thank God one of us is a professional. Bob's bitch. Uh, next one's from uh, Chris Hansen. He said, I want to know Bob's diet and exercise plan. Uh, LOL, kidding. <laughs> so I know it's a jokey question, but I'm going to answer it, right? So uh, with diet, uh, you've got people who want to sell you their program. And you've got people who are in the mind to buy because they want those kind of quick results, right? Um, and again, it goes back to like the sports science thing. You'll find a billion and one studies. It can be difficult to wade your way through all of this stuff. And again, this stuff can matter to high-level athletes again, but, but it's not going to really matter to the, the rank and file. We all know what healthy eating is. You know, don't eat too many donuts and eat a lot more fruit and vegetables. It's not overly complicated, right? And then in terms of maintaining weight, well, you do what Bob does. So, Calories in for Bob, zero. Calories out for Bob, zero. So therefore, Bob's calorific balance is bang on. So if you want to lose a little bit of weight, take in less calories. If you want to you know, gain a little bit, then take in a few more calories. And I would suggest that the changes should generally be small. If you want to lose weight and go on a crash diet, it sucks. It's not good for you and it's not maintainable and you'll hate every second of it and you'll constantly be battling food cravings. If you reduce your portions a little bit, 
so your calories are reduced, but you're still eating food that you like and you enjoy, um, th- then so long as those calories are down, the weight will start coming off. And I, I know it's not quite as straightforward as that, and I know these little nuances, and there'll be some of you listening to this, oh, but what about, what about, what about, what about, what about? But, but the, the, the fact is, um, a healthy, balanced diet with the calorific balance being correct is what the vast majority is need to achieve and making it more complicated than that is just off-putting to people it, it makes it too difficult I, I had a friend right who um he worked uh, in a cold environment so when he went into the bait cabin so i'll explain that if you're not from the north of england so bait is a word we use for lunch you know, a packed lunch, and a cabin is like a, a porter cabin type place where you eat it. So when he'd go into the bait cabin, um, he, he was he'd eat comfort food, he'd eat crisps and biscuits and stuff because he'd been freezing cold all day and it just felt nice to have some comfort food. He put on loads of weight. When he realised he wanted to drop this weight, he just cut out the biscuits and he cut out the crisps. Small change, right? The weight dropped off him. You know, what I mean, he's, he's he's in really good nick at the moment. You know, his body composition is great. But he just made that that one change. When I put on the weight, I was eating slightly more than I should. And over time, you just look down and you think, bloody hell, there's a belly there now. Where's that came from? Right. And then to get rid of it, I just did the exact same thing. Okay, what I do is, okay, I'm just going to eat slightly less over time. Because uh, it doesn't happen quick, and I think that's off-putting for people. So that they change the diet, and a week later, they're still the same weight. And they go, this isn't working. And, and I think that's not the way to do it. From my experience, the, the way to do it is go, I am just going to be more mindful of what I eat. I'm going to eat healthier and I'm going to reduce my calorific intake just a bit, just a little bit. So I'm not having to suffer in order to achieve it. And over time, you will lose weight. You, you know, so you just got to think, I'll change my diet now. And in three months' time, I'll be looking better and feeling better. So it's those small things. But in terms of, you know, Bob's diet, you know, the reason he looks as good as he does because his calorific balance is bang on, right? Next question is from Adam E. He's a, a forum member. He said, I was wondering if there are any methods that you see, use, or recommend for practicing solo kata and breaking it down in order to envisage the bunkai when a training partner is not available. I know tweaking the timing and intentionally trying to apply the kata movement has helped me personally, but I'm still curious if you have any other recommendations or ideas regarding the pursuit of developing bunkai when one cannot practice with a partner frequently. So, I mean, first thing is, you know, if you're learning to apply things on a human being, you need a human being to practice them on. Um, solo training can be a useful supplement, and I appreciate that for a lot of people that they can't get a training partner as often as they would like so you know some solo training is, is better than no training at all um and you know i'm a great believer in solo training uh, um so some of the things that i uh, do is uh, I, I do have bits of kit that i'll use bob dummies obviously um um you know i've tied arms to mine with bits of rope so i can grip and pull and manipulate the limbs round as i hit i can practice a lot of the bunkai like that i've seen people tie pool noodles to punch bags to achieve the same kind of thing uh, i've already talked about you know i've got like a belt tied to a tree there's lots of little things you can make that can make a reasonable analog of a human being so you can visualize a human being when you're practicing that stuff uh, the other thing is just pure visualization as well so some of the things that that i'll do you know i'll do the solo kata i'll work on any little bits of it i, I particularly want to improve on the solo performance and then often there's not i've run through the bunkai solo you know I, I, and i'll do it in a way visualizing different scenarios taller people smaller people where these objects and i'll i'll, I'll do the bunkai for the movement a few times 
I'll also do um, shadow fighting using uh, movements from a given kata. So I'll, I'll shadow fight using kishanku on a hanchi or the pinans, you know, and I visualize certain things happening. And then my certain responses and the enemy responding. And I'll, I'll try and create that vivid mental image in my mind. You know, visualization has been well studied and can be very effective. And then to finish off, I'll, I'll go back to doing some nice, neat solo cutter again. So, yeah, training equipment can be great. Visualization can be great. Uh, next question is from Frazato, a uh, forum member. He said, Lito Machida has been very successful in MMA, but has added to his traditional training in order to ensure his success. However, he has retained the aesthetics and principles of karate. In the spirit of changing with the times, is there value to us martial artists to incorporate these developments that prove to be functional, even if not exactly used for self-defense? So I think it depends on what your goals are. Um, so if you were training purely for self-defense, then you don't need to look at anything outside of that. In the same way, if you're training purely for the art, you don't need to look at anything outside of that. Or for sport, you don't need to look at anything outside of that. Uh, Machida, of course, has that traditional background, and then what he wants to do is, is use it in MMA. So he, he, he looks at his karate, practices it with that goal in mind, and supplements it with various groundwork skills, etc., etc., to create that complete package. Now, if you're interested in that MMA, then obviously you need to do that stuff too. Personally, I think one of the biggest mistakes I made in my own training is I did become too self-defense focused. And I started to ignore all the, the stuff that wasn't related to that. And then I matured a bit and opened myself back up to it again. Basically because my instructors told me to. Because, you know, as functional as they were, they, they were still, yeah, you still need to have the big picture here. So I started looking again at that consensual fighting skills and fell in love with that again and, you know, the art for art's sake and really starting to enjoy that and the culture and the history and all that kind of stuff. So I think it depends on what your, your ob ob objectives are, but it's good to train in all of it and then you bring in the elements that you particularly find useful that are in line with your, your individual goals. I don't think karate should ever remain preserved in amber, because even on the self-defense side of things, you know, people come up with new drills and new ideas, and laws can change, and all this kind of stuff, you, you know, we need to keep moving with the times, and if good information comes in, then if it serves our purposes and goals, then we should definitely um, incorporate that into our karate, as they always have done. Things we regard as being super traditional now weren't at one point the roundhouse kick wasn't part of karate at one point neither were geese neither was belts neither was you know karate meaning empty hand you know the dull bit at the end wasn't traditional you know the whole grading process all this kind of stuff bowing in and out at the start of every class training in lines all that kind of stuff wasn't traditional at one point but now people consider it as being traditional so in 100 years times the stuff we're doing today they'll look at as traditional karate so we need to take the baton from the past masters and add our little bit to it and then pass it on so karate continues to evolve and improve Next question is from uh, Pierre, forum member. Uh, that's not his surname, by the way. He's a forum member. Uh, he said, cross-training, how to do it well, how to integrate it into our karate, what is your experience? So uh, cross-training can be very valuable for the, the, the karate guy. I, I don't think it's mandatory because you, you if, you're, if you've got an instructor who's teaching in an holistic way, um, you'll learn most of what you need to learn from there, right? But if you want to excel in a particular area or you want to develop your karate, assuming you've got the time to do it, because not everyone has, then cross-training other systems can help. 
Funakoshi talks about how Zato and Itosu would send him to learn from specialists. You know, and he said, you know, he said, my the teachers never suffered from petty jealousy. He said they would send me to, oh, this guy's great at this, go and learn that from him. Well, the same thing applies. You know, if, if you, okay, I want to improve my throwing, go learn throwing. That's what one of my karate instructors told me. Right, you know, he, 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 uh, the karate instructor also trained in lots of different things. One day I'm training, he pays me a compliment and said, you know, your striking's looking great now. You know, he said, the next thing I think you need to do to get your throwing and stuff up the next level is go train in some judo. You know, so he taught me a lot, right? But no, go and train some judo too. So I go and train in, in judo. And when I went there, my objective was I want to learn judo. So I, I always think it's counterproductive to go there in the first instance saying, you know, I'm here as a karate guy or, or self-defense guy or whatever, and I'm not interested in the bits that don't serve my objectives. If you go into someone else's club, dojo or gym, then, you know, be a good guest, train in what they want you to train in. So that's what I did. I'm going to, I'm going to learn the sport of judo. And I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed learning stuff that was specific to the sport of judo. And that's all it was for. But I love learning it for learning it. It was fun. Then, of course, when my time with judo comes to an end, you know, because, again, there's only so many hours in the day, and I bring it back to the karate, there's some things I didn't integrate into the karate. So an example of that is, obviously, in the sport of judo, you can win by pinning your opponent on the back, similar to wrestling, right? So they have a whole host of techniques uh, to turn a person who's face down over onto his back. But for self-defense, you'd never do that, right? If he's face down, you want him face down. His weapons are facing away from you. You're in a good position to escape from that position. You would never have a guy who's face down and turn him face up because you're lessening your advantage. So that stuff, you know, I've forgotten 95% of it because I haven't retained it and I haven't practiced it. So, so my advice on cross-training would be, what areas do you specifically want to improve in? What art specialise in those areas? Go and learn that art for the love of learning that art. You'll probably find you, you enjoy all of it a lot more than you thought you, you would, not just the bits that are relevant back to your karate or whatever. When you bring it back, then you can decide which bits are relevant and which bits aren't, how you're going to integrate it in. So that's how I've approached it, and it certainly worked for me. Next question is also from Pierre. He said uh, he'd like me to talk about the challenges we face when transitioning to practical karate, the difficulty in finding a like-minded dojo, how to train alone, and self-doubt. For example, who am I to question what I've been taught, etc. So I'll break them down. So the difficulty in finding a like-minded dojo, that, that's quite common. There are a lot, a, a lot of good practical dojos out there. I mean, I know this because I spend a lot of time in them. You know, I travel to teaching them. I, I, I get to know these people. People come to my seminars, and I know that they're teaching this kind of stuff back in their own dojo. So there's a lot of them out there. But you might not find one on your, your doorstep. Now, if there isn't a good practical club on your doorstep, there might still be a good club on your doorstep. So I think sometimes people are guilty of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So they're training at a club that they like, they like the people there, they get a good workout there, they teach great kata, they teach great kion, you know, all that kind of stuff is there, but they're maybe not spending a lot of time on the bunkai. 
well, go to that club and get those good things that the club can give you and then get the bunkai from somewhere else. So if there is a practical club that's a little bit further away, maybe talk that club and ask if it's okay to visit, you know, once a fortnight, once a month. I have people do that in my dojo. We have, we have people who are not regular but semi-regular you know they're not regular students of mine but that they come and train in for what it is we do and that's great do that um seminars as well can help with that as well even if there's not a good local club maybe get the seminars because seminars are fast track learning and there's lots of good people out there teaching you know good quality information so stay plugged into that network and by attending those dojos and attending those seminars you'll get to rub shoulders with people who are into that same kind of karate as well so they're great for networking so it's not uncommon to find people who say oh i need a training partner for this stuff and some other guy oh so do i why where do you live oh man that's 20 minutes away from me so you get these little study groups forming as well so so that can can help you can train alone and we talked about that earlier it's not ideal but you can certainly do some practical training on your own too and as regards to self-doubt who am i to question what i've been taught well who are you not to <laughs> everyone should question what they've been taught you go to the dojo for your benefit not for the instructor's benefit right it's it, it you're not going there so he can propagate what it is that he teaches uh, you're going there because you want to learn what it is that they teach and hopefully you get that good relationship then where you want to learn what they're teaching and they want to teach you what they teach you know so everybody wins um but if you've got a very say 3k um based instructor and who's teaching it as pure art and has no interest in any kind of application or, or, or teaches really bad bunkai for example if you want good bunkai and your instructor's teaching bad bunkai well if you recognize it as such then it is such i mean you'd be tactful you don't have to say it to his face but you may say this isn't what i want i want to get this from somewhere else so go, go and do it, you know. Bad instructors will discourage you from doing that. Good instructors won't. You know, I've been really lucky that all my instructors have always encouraged me, you know, you know, make this your own, go out and learn your own thing. I've never had that thing of, you know, how dare you question what I do? How dare you do anything differently? How dare you go and train with somebody else? You know, all my instructors knew one another, respected one another. They all taught me something different. Uh, what I teach isn't the same as any of them. You know, I, I've kind of amalgamated it all together then done it in line with my own thoughts and experience as well, you know, and that's what I want my students to do too. As I've said before, if Ian Rue ever exists, I've failed. Uh, what I want to do with my students is I say, look, this is my karate. I want to show you my karate. Hopefully you like it. Hopefully it'll help you develop your karate. But at some point, you should be doing your karate and no longer mine. So when I'm deadening the ground, I'd like to think that my students and my students' students will be teaching something different to what I'm teaching now. If not, I haven't successfully given them the skills in order to continue their own journey and, and development so i often liken it to being a parent right you know when children are young that they need the parents to do everything for them but as they grow older and grow more experienced they need to start making their own way in the world you know even if the parent might not like some of the things that the that the child does but if you've got you know a 30 year old living in your basement who can't cope without mum and dad you haven't done a good job as a parent right at some point they need to be able to make their own way in the world they need to be able to manage without you 
And, and I think it's the same as a martial arts instructor. At some point, the students need to go, yeah, okay, I've, I've, I've got it now. And I can make this my own now. That, that point needs to come if you're teaching well. So yeah, you, you should question it. You know, again, you do it tactfully. You don't need to hurt anyone's feelings. You don't need, you know, but you can, if, if you think this isn't what you want, then you go find what you want. And it, it is out there. It is out there. Are you wanting a more prosperous 2020? Now is your chance to invest with Hikatei Limited. We are now applying our patented power generation technology to your financial investments. Our simple one-step process involves throwing half of your money away. And by the power of Hikatei, what is left will double. Now if you've noticed that, even if that works, which it doesn't, this will mean that you'll only end up with what you started with, then investing in Hikate Limited is not for you. If you've not noticed the major issues here, then we'd like you to join us. Just listen to the words of one of our many dissatisfied customers. My sensei said that his sensei said that this was a thoroughly sound financial proposition. So I invested twice, lost 75% of all I own, and I now live under a bridge like a common troll. Hikate Financial Investments Limited. You know it makes no sense, but do it anyway! Next question is from Naden Mutafov. I hope I pronounced your surname right there, Naden. He said, what's your take on the Makiwara as a tool? Do you think it can be substituted completely by pads, punching bags, and of course, Bob? Or does uh, it bring something unique to the karate technique? So the Makiwara can be a useful tool. It's particularly good for uh, alignment. So when you hit that pad uh, on the Makiwara, because it's bolted to the floor... Um, if your alignment is off, it will let you know straight away. It'll hurt your wrist or what, whatever. It'll feel weak. So it's good for that. The big negative with the Makiwara is it's a really poor analogue for the human body. You can't hit it from multiple angles. Um, you can't hit combinations with it. It's always at the same height. It doesn't change distance. So it, it's very limited. Pads, for example, with a good pad holder, you can hit it from lots of different angles, you can do combinations, you can actually grapple with the person who's holding the pads, it's far more realistic uh, on the, 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 the focus bit. So Makiwara can be part of the mix, but I think that other modern kit should be given uh, priority. Uh, and, and now some people don't like that, you know, they'll be, oh, but it's traditional. But the only reason we haven't got traditional focus mitt drills is because Itosu and the likes didn't have focus mitts. In a hundred years' time, they'll be talking about traditional focus mitt drills, right? If all you have is a rolled up bale of straw and some rope round a bit of wood, then that's all you've got. But with modern kit, high density foam, Velcro, modern production, that kind of stuff, we have these great bits of, uh, of kit that we should definitely be using. So I don't think the Makiwara is mandatory either, because I know of loads of really good strikers who've never used a Makiwara. <laughs> and I know some people who always use a Makiwara and are great at hitting the Makiwara, but are not great at hitting people because they're not good at adjusting distance on the move and that kind of stuff that you get from other pads. So yeah, the Makiwara, for me, I have one. I use it on occasion. But I generally defer to the more modern kit because I believe it's, it's, it's more effective and more useful. Other opinions are available, of course, but that is, uh, that, that's mine. Next question is from Steve Gower. He said, do you ever think, nah, I can't be asked today, not necessarily with karate, but with regards to the weights and such? Uh, yep, 
Yeah, I do. Very regularly. And so does everyone else. So don't feel bad if you do. Uh, I I think the the art is to know when it's a real justification for not training or a false one. So, uh, because I've definitely fell on the wrong side of this before. When I was younger, I would force myself to train when I shouldn't. I try and train through injuries and illness and, and been run down and it's dumb and counterproductive. You know, you need to uh, make sure that, you know, your training's not injuring you or, or, or making you ill. You know, so on some days, it's totally the right thing to do to say, I'm too tired, I haven't had enough sleep, I've got this injury, I feel a bit run down. Yeah, don't train that day. It's 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 a, the wise move. Uh, on other days, you know, it, it, it's just that you the comfort of the sulfur is beckoning and well i can train or i could kind of put some junk food on my lap put my feet up and watch netflix right so our bodies sometimes want to choose the path of least resistance but we know that's not good for us so and i sure i speak for everyone here that the times when you think ah i don't really want to train today but you force yourself to do it and then when you've trained you feel great you know, so it's it, it sometimes, you know, if you're on that border, it's just been able to objectively assess, should I really not train today or do I just not want to train today? And if you just not want to train today, try and do it, but try and do something. So what, one thing that I do a lot, like I'll have, oh, it's supposed to be kata training in the next session, but I don't feel like doing kata today. Do you know what? I do feel like hitting my bag. I'm going to go and hit my bag. You know, um, oh, I'm supposed to be weightlifting now. I don't really feel like weightlifting. I feel a bit stiff. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll do some stretching instead. So so doing that, doing something is better than nothing. You know, so if, if on a given day you don't feel like doing a thing, do something. Because that can help as well. But yeah, everyone feels like that from time to time. It, 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 it's, it's, it's all part of it. So if, if anyone does feel like that, you know, you're not alone. But my advice to you would be is just try and do something. If you haven't got a big workout in you, do a little one because that's it all counts. It all counts. Next question is from Heather Harris. She said, should people with aging bodies, say osteoarthritis, for example, just give up because they're physically restricted from doing it well effectively? Do you as an instructor learn to help people come to terms with the fact that they've been doing things differently to accommodate their own changes, especially when they've been doing it well previously and maybe in, in denial? So, th- th- yeah, and I think this, I've said this before as well, this is one of the great strengths of karate. So if, if you look, let's take, boxing is an example right you can do boxing at a certain point in your life but as you get older you generally find that most boxing gyms won't welcome you right if a 70 year old guy says i want to take up boxing it'll be a very special boxing gym that says yeah we've got room for you you know it's often young fit people you know training in boxing the great thing about karate is that young children can do it and the elderly can do it but they should do it differently so, you know, I'm in my 50s now. I don't train the way I did in my 20s. I don't do any full contact sparring anymore because it wasn't good for me then and it's certainly not good for me now. 
Can't take those bankler heads anymore. If I get an injury now, you know, when I was younger, I'd shrug it off in a few days. Now it can last for weeks. So I, I have to be more mindful in, in, in the way that I train. I don't do, like for the weightlifting, for example, I don't do super big heavy lifts anymore because it starts to get my joints in a way it didn't when I was younger. So I still train hard, you know, I still train effectively and I think I'm in great shape for someone of my, my age. But I, but I acknowledge that I am the age I am. I know people who train with all kinds of things. You know, I, I you know, I recently did a seminar where a guy was there. You know, and the guy had no arms, and he's doing karate, and he's doing it brilliantly. He's just able to adapt it. Everything I gave him, he had, he had a way he could adapt it. It was fantastic and really inspiring. Um, we're all built differently. I always think karate should be an individual pursuit. We can be excellent in what we do, but it's got to be individual excellence. You know, if you're not a great puncher, maybe you're a great kicker. Or if you're not a great kicker, maybe you're a great thrower. You know, there's also that acknowledgement, you know, which Heather alludes to, that just acknowledging that it's not about doing the karate that you did in your 20s for the rest of your days. I've got people in my dojo in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 40s, 20s and teens. You know, and, and they, they all train together, but they all train in certain ways. I'm not expecting the guy in the 70s to throw head height roundhouse kicks, you know, but the younger ones like that and enjoy it, and we're going to do it, right? So, and, and, and as an instructor, I, I want karate to be open to everybody. I think my favorite tale for this uh, is Igami's in his book, Heart of Karate Doll. So Igami was a student of Funakoshi's, uh, and he got stomach cancer. And he said that when he was diagnosed with stomach cancer, he went, okay, that's my karate over. And then he said he remembered that Funakoshi had told him, no, that karate was for everyone. So he just trained differently. He still did karate in a slower, softer, more gentle way and, and got benefit from doing it. I love that story. So, like, I know that when, you know, if I'm lucky enough to live that long, if I'm in my 80s and my 90s, I won't be doing the type of karate I'm doing now. I envisioned myself doing slow, gentle kata in the my garden and... You know, remembering all those glory days where I used to throw people with this stuff and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And now I'm just enjoying it for the joy of movement. You know, it won't be the same karate, but it'll be the right kind of karate for me at that that, that age. So, yeah, it should evolve with us. And I think that's one of karate's strengths. Final question is uh, from Ali Whittig again. He goes, what's the more effective pedagogy? Love that word. Um, learning fashion, um, for those who... <laughs> Don't know what it means. Uh, uh, military drilling or mass classes or smaller focus groups. So with effective, it's always, well, effective for what? You know, that's always the next question. So that military drilling uh, came about because what they wanted to do with the martial arts in that time period, you know, 1920s, 30s, were, uh, at the, and this all kicked off in the Meiji uh, restoration, right? The samurai classes dissolved. Uh, the Japan has realized it needs to rapidly modernize its military. Uh, there's mandatory military service. Anything to do with the old samurai, old-style martial arts, no longer has any value. It's regarded as old-fashioned. So the martial artists at the time, the clever ones, went, okay, we need to adapt or we're going to die out. So Kano for judo, you know, Itosu and then Funakoshi and then others for karate. Uh, they go, right, okay, what we need to do is we need to make this art into something that is fitting with the zeitgeist of the times. And part of what it'll do is produce fit young recruits for the military because it's mandatory military service, right? Everyone's going in the military. So they then start training in this militaristic style fashion which wasn't what was done before then the, you know the bowing at the start the, you know the meditation stuff the 
Us sensei, all that kind of stuff. That that's that's new, right? The, the, they layer it on. So that military-style training was ideal for developing people for the military. So it was effective for what it was designed for. I think if we're looking for more practical stuff, which is obviously what Ali's alluding to in the question, there's that hands-on element. So the instructor needs to be more intimately involved in that. He can't be at the front barking orders to 100-plus people. I know I sometimes get this with seminars. People say, what's the maximum number? So I'll give a maximum number, and they'll say, oh, you know, but we normally have a couple of hundred people. I say, yeah, but you know, I could stand at the front of the class and bark out commands to do a kata for a couple of hundred people. But for what I do, I've got to be able to move around everybody, individually correct them, do it to them so they can feel it. So those smaller groups are kind of needed, you know. So for the practicality, that smaller focus groups is, is definitely the way to go. And I'll be honest with you, it was better second time round. <laughs> so if you didn't enjoy this one, <laughs> you wouldn't have enjoyed it first time. So anyway, that's the end of the training questions. So we'll now look at the general karate questions. So the first question is from Tracy Radley. She says, which historic instructor can you relate to the most and why? See, that's a really interesting one. Part of the issue we have, of course, is um, we only know so much about them. So I think to really relate to someone, you need to spend time with them. Um, so you know, you know, the, yeah, me and this person are on the same kind of wavelength and we, we work together well. Um, but based on what we do know about them, uh, Itosu has a certain appeal to me. He's a short, dumpy bloke with above-average strength. I'm a short, dumpy bloke with above-average strength. <laughs> so that there might be that element there that, that, that connects us. I also have an affinity with Motobu. Um, one is because of his, his heavy emphasis on the practicalities, so I would have that. But, but also the, the fact that Motobu in mainland Japan was something of an outsider. You know, he never spoke fluent Japanese, needed the help for um, translators. You know, he spoke uh, his Okinawan uh, languages. Uh, and, and I feel that way about myself. You know, I've always felt myself as a little bit of a, an outsider, a little bit of an oddball. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I always say I'm on the outside looking out, though. I'm not on the outside looking in. <laughs> I've never wanted to be normal. It seems incredibly boring to me. Yeah, um, we've only got one life, and, and I want mine to be unique. So I'm I'm happy with that, you know. Um, I know sometimes being an outsider can be uh, a negative thing, but for me, I'm. It, it's what I've always wanted to be, you know. Uh, I always that, that's to me that's true success. True success is living life on your own terms, right? That, that's the thing. So, so, so the fact that Motobu was that that bit of an outsider from the culture was in gives me a certain affinity to him. I mean, there's other parts of Motobu's character, you know, that that, that I maybe wouldn't have that affinity with, um, but that side I probably would. So, I'd, yeah, I'd say Itosu and Motobu would be, be the two. Uh, I feel a. Uh, connection beyond the karate with physically and in, in, in terms of how they live their lives i think so the next one's also from tracy radley she said which uh, which kata would you say has had the biggest influence on karate that you practice today and and, and why uh, <laughs> I, I do this you know i redefine the questions don't i but there's two 
um, the, the, the Pinan series have definitely had a, a huge influence on karate practice because in the early days when I'm analysing these Pinans, uh, I realised there's, there's, there's a progression here. There's a combative system here uh, with move one of the kata leading on to move two, leading on to move three, and then you've got shodan leading into nidan, into sandan, into yodan, into godan. I could see that progression. Uh, and having recognised that, that helped me understand all the other katas better, that there's lesson plans within them too. Uh, so the, the Pinan series had a big influence on my overview of karate generally. But but I would also say that Naihanshi, uh, again, has had a huge influence. It's such a profoundly deep kata in terms of its, its body mechanics and, and, and everything. Um, so it would probably be those two, uh, I think, the Pinan series and Naihanshi have, uh, have, have, have helped give me insights that have helped me with everything else. If I had to pick, you know... A kata. Um, I think the Pinan series are difficult to separate, right? Because they're designed to be viewed as a whole. So I'd say the Pinans, but Nahanchi's, you know, a very close second there. So the next question is from Mary Stevens. She said, "Which do you think was most important to the karateka of their own generation? Uh, not in terms of legacy, uh, Itosu or Funakoshi." Uh, I, God, I see that's a difficult one. So if, if we break it down, so Funakoshi was the guy who really crystallized what karate doll was going to be. Uh, and then from that, the other masters at that time looked at what he was doing, realized that was how karate was going to be popular and, and kind of followed that. Not always willingly, sometimes reluctantly, but nevertheless they did. Uh, and the thing I, I think Funakoshi sometimes gets critique within our community. You know, he declawed it to a degree, and you know he was the the the, the guy who ultimately set up the uh, the, the doll and the the making karate less combative. Um, but the fact is, uh, if there wasn't a Funakoshi, there would be no karate. There, there would not be. Funakoshi was the guy who was able to make karate into something that would be popular and would spread. So no matter which style of karate you do, all of us owe Funakoshi a huge debt of gratitude. Because without Funakoshi, karate would have been a thing that either died out on Okinawa or would be this obscure martial art that only a handful of people had heard of. Um, so Funakoshi had a massive influence on his generation. Itosu, of course, also did because Itosu created a lot of the kata we practice today. He, he, he was the guy who... Um, started what Funakoshi effectively uh, completed. Um, Itosu is also, of course, heavily involved in the family trees of a, a lot of the uh, karate styles today. Whereas, you know, Funakoshi's um, he's obviously got an influence on Shotokan, of course, and uh, an influence. He was one of Utsuka's teachers, so he's got an influence on Wado there too. Um, but I think if you, between the two, I'd have to go with Itosu um, because uh, he kind of kicked off what Funakoshi then completed and in terms of his input to karate a lot of the katas that come to us today come uh, from Itosu and at the time that he was teaching obviously he's got a lot of those people training with him as well so obviously you know Mary specifically said not in terms of legacy but I think for the karateka around Itosu he probably had a bigger bigger influence than Funakoshi did on the karate around him 
but the two massively important figures you know massively important and uh, as i say without those two irrespective of whether funakoshi and utosu were in your particular lineage uh we all owe them because there would be no karate if it wasn't for those two uh, next one's on Matt Ricardo. He said, what are your views on people creating brand new styles of karate? So the first thing is, I I'm generally opposed to the idea of styles as well. Because once you've got a style, it's something fixed. And therefore, that kills off innovation and evolution. So my catchphrase, which, again, a lot of you will have heard, is I'm a martial artist first, a karate second, and I've no idea what style I am. So what I mean by that is, I'm a martial artist first, I'm open to all elements of the martial arts, I'll learn from anybody and I'll learn anything I think that's useful. I'm a karateka second, because karate, karate is the way that I prefer to explore the martial arts, it's the approach that I personally find more appealing. I'm not saying it's better than other martial arts, it's just definitely the best one for me. In terms of style, I don't have one. I've long since given up trying to attach a style name to it. We do karate. You know, and these quotes, you know, Funakoshi, for example, saying, I've heard myself and my colleagues referred to as the Shotokan school, but I strongly object to this attempt at classification. You've got Mabuni saying there are no styles of karate, only varying interpretations of its principles. So, so a lot of the old masters weren't keen on the idea of styles either. But in terms of people continuing to... Uh, evolve with, with their karate i think that, that definitely should happen you know we have this strange idea that the tr tradition of karate is something that was preserved in amber and it's just not the case if you look at the history every single generation has has, has, has altered their karate and passed it on to the next one which is what anything should do any field of human in endeavor the scientists of this generation aren't doing the same science as the last generation uh, that's not because they've abandoned it they're just building on it you know what i mean it's that old saying you know if i can see so far it's because i am as a dwarf standing on the shoulder of giants i think it was john of salesbury that said it but it often gets wrongly attributed to newton but so so yeah so personally i, I would question if it's wise for people to create new styles because once you've done that you've created something that this is the style and, and anything outside of this is not the style and therefore it must remain as it is that that can be a problem in in terms of people reinventing karate afresh and, and and taking in new ideas and new training methods and inputs from sports science and other martial arts you know we should be doing that there's that Miyagi quote as well where Miyagi said that karate should open itself up to practitioners of other disciplines uh, in order to receive criticism from them in order for karate to improve I, I, that's important it, it shouldn't remain the same we're not honoring the past masters by keeping it exactly as they did it we're dishonoring them in the same way that isaac newton would be appalled if he came back from the dead and found that people had went oh no science we practice the style the scientific style of newton rue and therefore any information that shows that newton was incorrect we've we've rejected you know the, the scientists seek the truth so if new information comes in they want that put in you know newtonian physics didn't quite explain the way that mercury orbits the sun right so there's something wrong here and then physics and cosmology move on they go oh we've got new information newton would want that new information and i think the old masters have the same view you know if we can make it better we, sh we, we should make it better as funakoshi said the times change the world change and martial arts must change too couldn't agree more bob's bitch have you got the voice you wanted now bob i have 
Wait, why am I so low? <laughs> Speak up, Bob. People can't hear you. You've turned me down, haven't you? Bob, I've done no such thing. The levels are the same as before. Honest, just speak up. I'm starting to regret inviting you on this podcast. You're a good ookie, Bob, but you're a terrible co-host. Back to the questions. Here, get this sorted. Get this Bob, sorted just out. Stop it, man. Stop it. We need to get on. Bob's bitch. So the next one, again, is also from Matt Ricardo. He said, do you think we should get rid of the concept of, of styles totally and, and have it all just as karate? Um, <laughs> for me, yes. I, you know, and, I, and I'll make that argument. But, but I do understand that for some people, part of what they like is, is feeling part of that family. You know, uh, they, they, they're not really interested in whether their karate is uh, effective as it could be they like being part of that style you know what i mean and and if they know that and they're aware of that and they're not saying oh no this style is perfection and can never be improved upon because that's not true of any field of human endeavor you know as a friend of mine once said karate is one of those bizarre things that thinks it reached its peak in 1940s no other field of human endeavor thinks that so for, for I would argue, yes, I think getting rid of the uh, styles, just like Funakoshi and, and, and Mabuni said, would help karate continue to evolve and continue to move forward. But for those who like feeling part of that family and their aim is not really optimum effectiveness, it's, it's to be true to the style, well, to each his own, you know, to, to each his own. So I hope that helps, Matt. Uh, next one's from John he always said Ian what do you think about the French military advisors inf influencing the teaching of karate which they did of course you know what I mean and, and, and not just the French either you know the, the way the English education system it was run using sport as a means to develop character was a big influence on Kano the founder of judo who you know was fundamentally responsible for developing that do concept that karate just then aped you know will now be karate do and will wear judo uniforms although albeit lightweight ones will rob judo's q downgrade system will use their belts you know ultimately that finds its origins in that and we've got itosu's letter where He's, he's arguing about how karate would be useful for the Japanese military, which he's trying to expand at that time, how it would be really useful for producing uh, good, fit recruits. And, and he quotes uh, Wellington, you know, and the Duke of Wellington is saying, you know, today's battle was won on the playing fields of Eton, you know, the, the schools as well. So th th there was definitely that influence. Japan is trying to modernise its military. It realises, you know, when Matt Perry turns up in his... American battleships and forces the, the the Japanese to return all the American shipwrecked sailors have captured and forces them to trade with them. They realise, man, there's nothing we can do against this. We've got swords and shields and bow and arrows, and they're turning up in this great big massive battleship and pointing their guns at what is now Tokyo as a negotiating position. You know, we need to upgrade our military. So, of course, they look to what the West is doing because they're the ones that are trying to emulate. So, so yeah, you know, there was... Karate has had a big influence on Western um, militaristic thinking and, and, and the, de the de development of training methods to produce good military recruits. Definitely a big influence. And I think this points to the fact, you know, we tend to regard the martial arts as Eastern, which of course they are, that's where they come from, but there's a lot of Western influences there as well. So, you know, I, I do think karate now, as it's practiced now, is, is global. <laughs> Again, it's... Uh, 
say it jokingly, but it's kind of true, and a little bit simplistic perhaps, but I tell my students, you know, oh yeah, we're practicing a Western version of a Japanese version of an Okinawan version of a Chinese art. You know, it, it's, it's, it's moved through those different cultures and all of them have had a little input onto it. And it's, that, that's how it should be. Uh, next question is from Will Hayes. He goes, I'd love to know your opinion on o- o- Oichiru. Uh, have you done any research or training involved with this style? I haven't. Uh, it's one I don't know a great deal about. I've read a few books on it. I've, you know, I've seen how they do the katas and stuff. But uh, there's not many practitioners of that style in my part of the world. So I, I don't really come into um, contact with them very often. So I can't really answer that one because I don't know a great deal about it. That's obviously something I need to um, correct, I think. It's like most parts of the world, you get styles that are dominant in that particular geographic location because of whoever who taught there first, effectively. You know, and then their students go off and propagate it and the students of the students, and that tends to work. So, for example, in the, in, in the US, Ishinru is a very popular style. In the UK, we do have an Ishinru. Tiki Donovan created his own Ishinru, but that's not the same one. It's very few Okinawan Ishinru practitioners in the UK because we didn't have many people settle with that style. But we've got a lot of Shotokan, a lot of Wado, a lot of Shitoryu, a lot of Goju because they were the ones who settled and, and spread it to this part of the world. So I don't know enough about Uichiru to make an informed comment and that's obviously something I need to correct. Uh, next one's from Ali Whittek. He says, Hanashiro and Yabu, uh, more of an influence on Itosu's designs than we are traditionally told. I, I think that's definitely true. So, of course, these are students of Itosu. Itosu makes the argument, look, you know, I know martial arts are old-fashioned now and nobody wants to do them anymore, but if you look at these things, there can be a great way to produce fit, young, disciplined troops. And a, a lot of the militaristic elements that we have in karate now, you know, the lining up by rank and yus-sensei and all that kind of stuff, this is uh, Hanashiro's and Yabu's influence. So they definitely were a big influence. Military men, they knew how the military worked, right? So then that gets passed on to the way we teach and karate is practiced because it's looking to re- uh, produce recruits for the military. Again, I need to emphasize, this doesn't mean that we're looking to train the troops in karate for actual use on the battlefield. Th- that acknowledge that, you know, using swords and spears is outdated. So fighting hand to hand is completely outdated. We need people who can shoot well and sail battleships and all that kind of stuff, fly planes. That's what we need. But we need fit, healthy, disciplined people in order to do that too. You know, around that time, militaries from all over the world were starting to acknowledge the importance of that, that, that physical fitness and mental resolve. So, so that was starting to become part of the way that all the martial arts were practiced because they, they realized that would, that would help this, these rapidly expanding militaries. You know, so yeah, definitely. You know, uh, Hanashiro and Yabu get overlooked there, but yeah, they were definitely a big influence on, on how Itosu's karate got spread. Uh, next one's also from Ali Wittick. Good, interesting, theoretical one, this one. So it says, uh, Motobu, in, his, in brackets, when he was 30 years old, so a young man, uh, could he defeat a professional boxer or MMA fight at a day? I think he could, he could give it a good... Go- I mean, it depends, you know, I mean, which boxer, right? You know, so could Motobu defeat 
an elite level, high level boxer, you know, probably not, you know, especially under modern boxing rules because things have, have changed. But, you know, we know he beat a number of boxers, you know, in his, in his day. You know. So assuming that Motobu was around today and still had that awareness of how modern boxing works, I think he'd do pretty fine against a boxer. I'm sure he would. Uh, MMA is a more different one because one of Motobu's losses was against a wrestler. And then when he was talking to uh, Nagamimi, one of his uh, students, uh, he remarked to him that, yeah, you know, we have to understand that the techniques of the kata were not designed for a, an athlete in an arena or a warrior on a battlefield. They're designed for self-defense purposes, another, a non-karateka, if you like. You know, it's a methodology of self-defense, not dueling another martial artist, non-consensual violence, not consensual violence. So we know he, he did lose to a wrestler in a, in a you know, a, a consensual fight. You know, he got out wrestled so could he fight out fight an mma fighter today probably not unless he improved those skills but you know that, that's no slight on motorboo at all you know it, it, martial arts move on uh, you could argue you know who would win on a fight today you know a, a modern soldier or or, or a, a viking berserker you know <laughs> well a modern soldier is because warfare's moved on you can run towards him with your axe and he's going to blow you away from half a mile away right um, so yeah, things things kind of move on. But I think if Motobu was around today, we definitely know he was a very open-minded guy, and and, and I think I think he would have uh, integrated this stuff into his, his his training, and we know he could fight well against uh, those people of his time. So uh, yeah, I, I think he'd he'd give them a good run for the money anyway. Bob's bitch. Well, folks, I'm sorry to say that Bob has wandered off in a sulk. Uh, if he comes back, I'll let you know. Take that, you baldy-headed half-wit. Right then, I'm answering all the questions from now on in. What do you mean it's the end? Don't you dare cut me off. Don't you dare. I'll ookie you to within an inch of your life. Don't you dare fade me out. Don't you dare fade me out. End of part two.